0: Sometimes when you read the Bible, it reads like a Hollywood mob movie. Sometimes the Bible is like reading the script to Scarface or Goodfellas or The Godfather. There are power grabs and shakedowns and lust for money and corruption and hits being put out on people. People getting made and people getting whacked. Forget about it. That's what we'll see today in 1 Kings as the Lord establishes the kingdom for Solomon. So turn in your Bibles to 1 King, chapter 2. And it may make us uncomfortable, but if the kingdom is to be established for Solomon, enemies must be dealt with. There will be blood and lots of it. People will have to die. People will get whacked. And sometimes that makes people uncomfortable as they read the Bible. So as we look at 1 Kings chapter 2 today, the question to keep in mind is not, is this right? Is what's happening right? The question, as we read about people getting whacked, is, is this just? Ralph Davis is helpful here as he comments on the severity of God's judgment in the Old Testament. He says, if people have difficulty with God's judgment here, it is, I think, a matter of taste rather than substance. They will likely raise the bogey of the quote-unquote Old Testament God, blowing people away for the slightest offense and dropping folks in their tracks for minor slips. But it's all a smokescreen by folks who don't Read the whole Bible. What do they do with the quote-unquote New Testament God who arranges a double funeral because folks fudged about a real estate deal? Acts chapter 5. Why did folks at Corinth end up in the ER or the morgue because of a little arrogance at the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11. Why the severity of Hebrews chapter 10 and chapter 12? Quote, unquote, difficulties with Old Testament narrative often reveal more about us than about the Old Testament. We tend to get irritated if God doesn't fit our notions of what he ought to be. We don't, truth be told, want some God we have to fear, which is to say we don't want the real God. Don't be afraid to wade into the nasty narratives of the Old Testament. For it's in the nasty stuff you'll find the God of scary holiness and incredible grace waiting to reveal himself. And that's what we'll see in 1 Kings chapter 2 today. In this mob-like passage where people are getting whacked left and right, we'll discover the God of scary holiness and incredible grace waiting to reveal himself to us. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 2, where we'll actually see how Jesus deals with his enemies. How does Jesus deal with his enemies? King Jesus kills them with kindness. You've no doubt heard the saying, kill them with kindness. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does with his enemies. Right now, Jesus is extending his kingdom in this world. His kingdom is being established, and he does it through the preaching of the gospel. As the good news of his kindness to sinners is preached, he pursues and subdues his enemies and brings them home, and they become family. Not that God doesn't judge people and nations now, because he does. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that God doesn't judge people and nations now. As we just read, God even deals with and disciplines the church. Just read Acts Chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 11. God does judge and deal with people and nations. But as the gospel goes forth, Jesus pursues his enemies with kindness, with mercy. Please don't water that down. Don't try to dilute it. Don't clarify it. Don't footnote it. Please don't endnote it this is good news and it's shocking. Don't try to keep grace in a gated community. The King of Mercy establishes his kingdom, not by killing his enemies, but by forgiving them. He kills them with kindness. The king of mercy leaves his throne and goes to the ghetto across the tracks to save rebels and enemies. And then he adopts them into his family. Enemies become family. Forget about it. You can use forget about it that way. If you affirm something good, like Jesus loves sinners, forget about it. Enemies become family. Forget about it. Jesus loves his enemies, and he pursues them, and he will stop at nothing to win their hearts and reconcile them through his cross. In the gospel, whores are hugged. Rebels are reconciled. Killers are caressed. And really, really, really bad people get to enjoy a really, really, really good So look at 1 Kings chapter 2. Remember, as we saw two weeks ago, David is handing the throne over to his son Solomon, and David is speaking to Solomon here now. In the first four verses, he told his son Solomon, you've got to stick your finger on God's word, on the Mosaic law, and don't depart from the Lord's statutes. Walk in his commandments. And now David gives further instruction. Look at verse 5, and hear the word of the Lord. Moreover, You also know what Joab the son of Zerariah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace." but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore... Do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So if you recall where we left off two weeks ago, King David is dying. He's transferring power over to his son Solomon, and he told him, you've got to stick your finger on God's laws and commandments as the king. You are the moral compass of the nation. If your heart turns away from the Lord, the nation will turn away from the Lord. But Solomon is young and inexperienced, And as the baton is being passed, many enemies still remain. So the question is, will the kingdom survive the transfer of power? Will the throne stay secure? Will the kingdom be safe? If the kingdom is to be safe and secure, if the kingdom is to be established, some practical political measures must be taken. The enemies of the kingdom must be wiped out. Some enemies must be whacked, David says. And the hit list that David gives to his son Solomon is as follows. Number one, Joab. Joab must be put to death, David tells Solomon, because he retaliated for war crimes and killed Abner and Amasa during the time of peace. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 3 and 2 Samuel 20. David felt that the guilt of Joab's unpunished sin would eventually bring disaster on the kingdom if it was left unpunished. Another man made the hit list as well, Shimei. Shimei, David says, must be put to death for how he treated David in 2 Samuel 16 when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. David had, however, given Shimei an oath when when Shimei later repented. And David said, I will not put you to death. But now David tells Solomon he must deal with Shimei. But David also tells Solomon that he must deal loyally with Barzillai's sons. Barzillai was a rich man who provided David with food when David was at, in Mahanaim in 2 Samuel 19. So David tells Solomon, you've got to care for Barzillai's family. David is concerned about the future of the kingdom, but with this thought comes the kingdom's past, namely his own failures as king. So David realized that he dropped the ball during his reign as he did not deal with Joab and Shimei as he should have. Perhaps this is why he told Solomon in verse 2, be strong and show yourself a man. David knew he was not able to control Joab and he acted foolishly in this regard to in his treatment of Shimei. He lacked courage to deal with both of these men and he knows now they must be dealt with. But we must see here that David is not reacting out of vengeance or retaliation for his own sake. What drives him is justice. What drives him is passion for the future of the kingdom. Therefore, he asks Solomon to use wisdom in verse 9 in dealing with Joab and Shimei. The bottom line is here. The threats to the kingdom must be annihilated. So, David's parting words to his son Solomon were, number one, read the Bible. That's what he said. We saw it two weeks ago in verses 1 through 4. Read the Bible. Make breakfast for the Barzillai family. And number three, kill Joab and deal with Shimei. Do that, David is saying, and the kingdom will be secure. And Solomon listened to his dad. Solomon continued having his quiet time, reading his Bible, the Mosaic Law, He made pancakes for the Barzillai crew, and he put a hit out on some people. And so Solomon has this little yellow post-it note with his to-do list from his father David. Number one, read the Bible. Number two, make breakfast for the Barzillai boys. And number three, kill Joab and deal with Shimei. And the author of 1 Kings tells us in verse 12 that the kingdom was firmly established. But before we read about how Solomon dealt with Joab and Shimei, the author of 1 Kings interrupts the story, and he wants to show us how Solomon dealt with two of the kingdom rebels that we read about earlier in chapter 1, namely Abiathar the priest and Solomon's older idiotic brother, brother Adonijah. If you recall, Adonijah led a coup against Solomon, and Abiathar the priest joined uh, Adonijah in that. So before Solomon can deal with Joab and Shimei, he has to deal with two others first. Namely, his older brother Adonijah and Abiathar the priest. So Solomon acts according to the wisdom that David said he had in verse 6. And he responds to those two people who led a coup back in chapter 1. Adonijah is killed for doing something really stupid. And Abiathar the priest is spared But he is removed from serving as a priest. Look at verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And he said, do you come peacefully? She said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. Speak. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. Bathsheba said to him, speak. And Adonijah said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. And Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. And then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. And then Bathsheba said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. And Bathsheba said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me more also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Okay. So Adonijah, Solomon's older brother, approaches Bathsheba, not his mother, and, and, which is Solomon's mother, and Adonijah asks Bathsheba to ask Solomon if he will give to Adonijah the very beautiful Abishag the Shunammite for his wife. It sounds like junior high, doesn't it? Will you ask so-and-so if she will go to the movies with what's-his-name? Because what's-his-name likes so-and-so but is afraid to ask her out on a date? So junior high, Adonijah. Forget about it. For all of you who are partial to Adonijah and saddened that he would be killed by his brother Solomon, his request to Bathsheba to get Abishag the Shunammite to be his wife was tantamount to treason. You may be thinking, really? Treason? Treason? Yes, because in the ancient Near East, asking for or taking one of the king's wives or concubines was construed as trying to make a move to take over the throne. You remember Abishag the Shunammite from two weeks ago, the beautiful girl that they brought as the human electric blanket to keep David warm? This is the girl that Adonijah wants, and it's treason just asking for it. Now, it's interesting that Bathsheba went along with the plan too. Some think she was naive, but I think she's just being shrewd. I think that she knew that this would get under Solomon's skin and therefore he would react by eliminating the threat to the kingdom. And eliminate Adonijah, he did. Actually, Solomon sent his right-hand man, Benaiah, to clip Adonijah. But let's get our bearings again, lest you become overwhelmed with pity for Adonijah. Solomon had already extended grace to his older brother back in chapter 1. All that Adonijah had to do was lay low. Don't stir the waters. Prove himself to be a worthy man. But wickedness was found in him. Adonijah's actions in asking for... uh, Abishag the Shunammite, to be his wife, provoked Solomon to an action that he might not have taken had his older brother not rebelled. Let's remember, Solomon has already given Adonijah a second chance. Remember, Adonijah claimed himself to be king, and he wasn't the king. This second power play is what cost Adonijah his life. And so Solomon sent Benaiah to Adonijah's house. And when Beniah knocks on your door in the Old Testament, it does not end well. When this man named Beniah rings your doorbell in the Old Testament, it does not end well. In case you don't know who Beniah is, here's a short Wikipedia entry from 2nd Samuel 23. Listen. And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Capzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. So Benaiah's resume only had a few bullet points. Valiant man from Kabzeel, doer of great deeds, striker downer of two Moabite armies. He killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He killed a handsome Egyptian with his own spear, grabbed the spear out of his hand and killed him. And he was the bodyguard of King David. So when Beniah rings your doorbell and shows up at your house uninvited, you better hope you have life insurance because your family is going to need it. Beniah is like Al Pacino in Scarface. He pulls out his sword and he says, Say hello to my little friend. And Adonijah gets struck down. That's what Adonijah got for trying to propose to Abishag. Adonijah got a date with Benaiah for trying to get a date with Abishag. And Benaiah, the handsome Egyptian spear snatcher and the snowy day lion killer, did what he did best to Solomon's older brother because Solomon's older brother was an idiot. Adonijah made another subversive move for the kingdom and he got moved to his new resting place at the cemetery. Adonijah got what he deserved, justice. This would be a good time to stop and think about how we don't get what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve every day. That's why God's mercies are new every morning for believer and unbeliever alike. Matthew 5, God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good to people like us. We don't get what we deserve. God is merciful. He is patient. He offers amnesty now. His kindness leads rotten, rebellious sinners to repentance. King Jesus is kind. King Jesus is kind. As sinners, we often feel like God is out to get us. And he is, just not in the way that we thought. We picture a God who is trigger-happy, And ready to strike us down if we say a bad word. But for all of our fear of judgment, how many times have we been ambushed by grace instead? How many times have we been ambushed by His grace? How does Jesus treat His enemies every day? King Jesus kills them with kindness. Right now, it's not the sword of Jesus that leads sinners to repentance. Romans two Romans 2, four says, it's his kindness. Well, Solomon has three more people to deal with before his kingdom gets established. One will lose his job, but save his life. One will find justice catching up with him years later. And one will lose some servants, but then lose his life. So look at verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king Solomon said, Go to Anatoth to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So Abiathar had ministered in the time of David, but recently, back in chapter 1, he had joined Adonijah's coup as Adonijah tried to claim himself as king. And we know back in 1 Samuel 2 that Yahweh rejected Eli's household, of which Abiathar was a member. And so now, many years later, Abiathar is expelled from the priesthood by Solomon, thus bringing to completion and fulfilling the prophesied word back in 1 Samuel 2. And then after dealing with Abiathar and expelling him and taking away his priestly ministry, Solomon now moves on to deal with trigger-happy Joab and hard-of-hearing Shimei. Look at verse 28. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and cut hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon... Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But Joab said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king replied to Benaiah, Do as he said, "'Strike him down and bury him, "'and thus take away from me and from my father's house "'the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. "'The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, "'because without the knowledge of my father David, "'he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself, "'Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, "'and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. "'So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab "'and on the head of his descendants forever.'" But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Beniah the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there to any place, whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Machah, king of Gath. And when it was told, Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose, saddled a donkey, and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever, you shall die. And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to my father David. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So this is pretty straightforward narrative, but it is part of the story of how Solomon's kingdom got established. Part of that meant that Abiathar the priest had to lose his job. And so Abiathar lost his job, but saved his life. That's a little nicer than what happened to Joab. Joab was at Starbucks drinking a nitro cold brew when he read the newspaper headlines, Adonijah and Abiathar, treason. And Joab wasted no time in running to to the temple, to the sanctuary, to the altar for asylum. Solomon then sent Benaiah and has him execute Joab for the murders he committed under David's leadership. So Benaiah's working overtime these days. He's got a bloody sword, and he's going to have a fat paycheck. But we fast forward a few years, and Shimei must have been part of the Jerusalem idiot club that Adonijah belonged to, because he does something stupid too. If you recall, Shimei had cursed and thrown rocks and dirt clods at David back in 2 Samuel chapter 16. So Solomon calls Shimei in as his father David had commanded. And yet Solomon gives him one more chance. He may live if he stays in Jerusalem. All he has to do is get a good job, buy a house, and never leave town. Solomon said that he would spare Shimei's life if he'd have stayed put and never left his house. But Shimei left. All Shimei had to do was listen to Solomon, but he didn't. Ironically, Shimei's name means hearing or listening, but Shimei didn't hear, he didn't listen to, he didn't obey Solomon, so he got to take a little stroll with Benaiah, where he heard Benaiah say these words, say hello to my little friend. And so we end the bloody chapter 2 with these words in verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So the kingdom was established. So what? What does all of this have to do with us? How does all of this spare this guy, kill this guy, how does all of that point us to Jesus? What's it telling us about our own hearts? Well, first, it shows us that we desperately need Jesus because we're sinners. It shows us that we are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need. Listen, we should walk away from this chapter with the fresh revelation that we can be idiots too. Just like Adonijah and Shimei, we can make stupid decisions. We can sin and really mess up our lives. So what we see from this passage is that we desperately need Jesus. Why do we need Jesus? Because we are hopeless and helpless and in terrible need. But there's also an end time, end of the world element to this passage that points us to King Jesus. As Greg Beale says, the major doctrines of the Christian faith are charged with eschatological Electricity. Eschatological, eschatology, end times, how the world's going to end, what happens at the end of the world. The major doctrines of the Christian faith are charged with eschatological electricity. But so are the seemingly boring passages, even boring passages that don't give us goosebumps. Seemingly boring passages where people are getting made and people are getting whacked. They are charged with end time, end of the world electricity. One day, Jesus will do to his enemies far worse than what Benaiah did to Solomon's enemies. Do you know what the name Benaiah means? Do you know what Benaiah's name means? Beniah means son of Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name in the in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Beniah means son of Yahweh. And so the real Beniah, the real son of Yahweh, Jesus, will one day pull out his sword of justice and punish his enemies forever one day Jesus will return with a sword in his mouth and say to all unbelievers, say hello to my little friend, if you will. That means that if you don't repent or turn from living for you and your glory, if you don't own up to your sin, if you don't admit that you have rebelled against God, if you don't run to Jesus for safety, then you will spend eternity suffering apart from the love of God. It doesn't matter if you are a handsome Egyptian. You will stand before the real Beniah, the real son of Yahweh one day. Even if you were so strong that you killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day, you will be no match for the real king. But... The good news of the gospel is that you can escape judgment and eternal suffering by turning to Jesus. Just open the empty hands of faith and believe. This is how Jesus deals with his enemies right now. Jesus kills them with kindness. As Preston Sprinkle says, grace is more than just leniency and unconditional acceptance. Divine grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. Grace is not just God's ability to save sinners, but God's stubborn delight in his enemies. Yes, even the creepy ones. Grace means that despite our filth, despite the sewage running through our veins, despite our odd addiction to food, drink, sex, porn, pride, self, money, comfort, and success, God desires to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. Grace is God's aggressive pursuit of and stubborn delight in Freakishly foul people. Jesus delights in his enemies, even the creepy ones. And that's good news for some of you that are here today. Jesus aggressively pursues and then stubbornly delights in freakishly foul people. Good news for some of you that are here today. We should be awestruck by that. Because you know what you did last week and I know what I did last week, or thought, or said, we should be overwhelmed that Jesus is so kind to us, so good to us, people like us, that he went to the cross and bore the penalty for our sin, for all of the filth and, and all of the sewage that's running through our veins. Bitterness, envy, jealousy, anger, hatred, worry, anxiety, fear, pride, for all of our odd addiction to food and drink and sex and porn and pride and self and money and comfort and success. Jesus died for all of that for us. And one day, Jesus will show us his scars. We'll see his scarred face. We'll see with our eyes how he endured the cross For the joy that was set before him, which was being with us. How he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. How he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How he was treated, whipped, beaten, mocked, nailed, on the cross for our treason. How he was treated for our treason. The king did all of that for his enemies. Eric Ortland says, can you imagine, can you image meeting Jesus in the flesh, in the eschaton? And he comes and hugs you and points to his scars and looks you in the eye and says, I was so happy to go through that suffering because it meant I got you. That's what we'll get to experience. His kindness will continue believers into eternity for ages upon ages upon ages. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, here's why Jesus saved you, Christian, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. For those of us who are in union with Christ, why did God save you? So that in the coming ages, He might show you the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us. The coming ages, plural. I don't even know what that means. Ages, plural. But I do know this. What are we going to be experiencing for ages, plural? The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. I can't wait. That's the good news for people like us. The bad news is that judgment is coming. King Jesus kills his enemies with kindness now, but one day. It will be too late to experience this kindness, this ages upon ages plural kindness. One day, it will be too late to see that and get in on it. The unbeliever who does not repent or turn and trust in Christ will suffer eternally under the sword of God's righteous judgment. One day, you will stand before the God of scary holiness One day, to all who have never bowed their knee in this life, Jesus will say, say hello to my little friend. So repent today. Open the empty hands of faith and come home to Jesus and let him clean you up and love on you. The great life-giving and liberating news that we have to share with the dying world is that there is a God the God of incredible grace and his love for sinners is inexhaustible and it's free. This is our message. This is our message and we cannot improve on this. We have no greater message. This is the gospel and when this good news is shared, the kingdom of God extends and advances into this world. When this good news is preached, the kingdom of God is established. It gets established as King Jesus kills him with kindness. How does he do that? When we share this good news with others. That's how the kingdom of God is extended in this world. The kingdom of God is not some thing that happens for some specified time in the future. Like, that's the kingdom of God and that little bracket right there only. no. The kingdom of God is advancing in this world right now. Even as I'm preaching, I have the coolest job. As we share the good news that there is a God and his love for sinners is inexhaustible and it's free, then Jesus pursues his enemies and kills them with kindness. He regenerates them and makes them new. Let's close with a statistic that I've shared before, but I hope this will encourage you to share the good news that there is a God of scary holiness and incredible grace waiting to reveal Himself. And His love for sinners is inexhaustible and it's free. According to the Barna Group, the Central Coast is ranked number two in the U.S. on the Never Churched list a list of cities where there are the highest number of people that have never, ever been to church once. In all the cities in the U.S., the Central Coast is ranked number two on the never-been-to-church list. Here's the list. Coming in at number one, West Palm Beach and Fort Pierce, Florida. 17% of the population there has never been to church. Number two, Santa Barbara, Santa Maria, San Luis Obispo, 16% we are number two on the list of cities from Santa Barbara all the way up to San Luis Obispo that have the highest number of people who have never been to church once. In all of America, we're the number two city and region that is full of people who have never walked into a church once to hear that there's a God who has inexhaustible love for sinners and it's free. This should not be. There are more never-churched people here on the Central Coast than there are in New York. Sixteen percent of the people that live on the Central Coast have never been to church once, and that is sobering. And that means that God has sovereignly placed you in your neighborhood and in your workplace so that you, you, can share Jesus with these people because they're not going to just walk in the doors. They might. But statistically, they're not just going to walk in the doors. So God has placed you in your neighborhood and your workplace so that you can share Jesus with these people. The baristas at your Starbucks have been placed there so that you can tell them about Jesus. They didn't know it when they put in their application. They didn't know, why, why are you applying for this job so someone can tell me about Jesus one day? They didn't know that. They think they're there for the paycheck and the free pound of coffee a week that they get. But they're there so that you can build relationships with them and become their friend and tell them how much Jesus loves them. Your cashier at the grocery store that you see each week is there so that you can tell them about Jesus. Your co-worker, your neighbor, God has placed you where you are to reach the people where you are. Why not join King Jesus on his mission to kill his enemies with his kindness? Why not introduce them to your Savior and tell them, say hello to my big friend. His name is Jesus, and he's the king, and he's kind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for people like us, that you would send your son Jesus to live and die and come back from the dead for us so that we could be with you where you are and share in that that inner Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity. That you sent Jesus so that in the coming ages, plural, you would just pour out upon us your kindness and your love, this immeasurable richness of kindness and grace. It's such good news and we love it. Refresh and renew and recalibrate our hearts with it this morning God and then use us to reach our neighborhood and workplace in this city in the central coast for your glory and for the joy of the enemies that you're pursuing that you will one day adopt into your family. Help us we ask in Jesus name.